Welcome to Lessons for Life, where we seek to learn, love, and live the Word of God. Now, here is James Long Jr. Good morning. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through him who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. So Father, we pray today As we um, open your word, I pray that you would help us to hear the comforting counsel of your Holy Spirit. I pray that we would hear the assurance and the certainty of your son's cross and what he's done for us and what he did for us and what he's even doing for us right now amazingly. And Lord, for us that struggle with assurance, for us that struggle with doubts, for us that struggle with sin, I pray that you would... Speak to us deeply in our hearts. Father, wrap us in your arms. Bring us to your son's cross. Remind us of the empty tomb. Remind us of the power of the Spirit. And help us to bring glory and honor in your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, the ifs of Romans chapter 8. There are a series of ifs, um, words, statements, and in fact, the first 11 verses that I got a chance to read, you may have heard the word if on several occasions. There are many more in the chapter. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to get to all of them, but what I would like you to think about is this. This word if, it's a small word, but it's a powerful word. And sometimes this word can be a word of conditional or condition. It could be a word of possibility, and there could be a lack of assurance that can come with this word if. But there are some times, and I believe in most of the times that it's mentioned here in Romans 8, it's not a word of a lack of assurance or possibility. It's a word of certainty. It it could be retranslated since. 
since God has done this for you, you have assurance that is there for you, purchased by Christ, applied to you by the Holy Spirit that's in your life today. So as you go through your deep struggles and struggles in life, what you will find is that you need to remind yourself once again of the beauty of the gospel and the wonder of what Christ has done for you. There was a verse here that I read in Romans chapter 8, verse 6, and it said, for the mind that is set on the flesh is what? Death. But the mind that is on the spirit is life and peace. There's much that happens in our minds, and where we set our minds really will determine the future and the foundation of where we're going in our lives. And what, what Paul is arguing here is that for a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been given the mind of Christ, that the Holy Spirit lives in you, and he breathes in you, and he is teaching you, your tr- teaching you the truth of the gospel. So our minds, the way we think and what we believe and the, what we concentrate on and how we meditate means so much. It's so important in our lives. Our hearts are the central part of our being, who we are. Or your thoughts, your feelings, your intentions, your passions, your desires are all coming out of your heart. And the Bible talks about the fact that we as a person thinks in their heart, so are they in Proverbs. Or in, and again, it says, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Taking your thoughts captive or in Romans 12, renewing your mind over and over again. We need to be renewing our mind, going back to the good news of the gospel and hearing that assurance today. But I wonder today if you are sitting here this morning and you're lacking assurance of your salvation. You're lacking assurance of your relationship with God. Maybe you're lacking assurance of how God views you. Does God really love me? Has God really forgiven me? Is this sin too great for him to forgive? I want you to hear these words today. Satan has come into this world to destroy Satan has come into this world to dismantle all that is God's. And what he wants to do is he wants to take away your joy. He knows that he cannot take away a believer's life in Christ. It cannot be done. He does not have the power to do that. Nothing will ever separate you from the love of God, and that includes Satan. But Satan wants you to not believe that. He wants you to believe that your joy, your lack of joy, and the struggles that you have are a byproduct of the fact that you're outside of Christ. So what he wants you to do is to believe that God can has taken his love away from you, that God is no longer your comfort, that God has removed himself from you. I've been reading this small little book by Thomas Brooks, and Thomas Brooks is a Puritan from 17th century, and, and he speaks of ways that Satan seeks to lend, uh, limit our assurance in Christ. And I want you to hear, he, he gives eight things. I'm just going to go over them briefly before we get into the Romans passage. And he says, eight ways that Satan has tried to hinder your assurance in Christ Number one, he wants you to think more of your sin and less of the Savior. And isn't that true? That the more oftentimes that you find yourself struggling with your sin and focusing on your sin, focusing on your guilt, you're missing grace. When you're focusing on your sin, you're missing the Savior. And that's exactly what Satan wants you to do. He wants you to take your eyes off the cross and put it onto your sin. And it creates dilemmas in your life. Brooks said this, secondly, that he wants you to wrongly understand God's grace. He wants you to believe, Satan wants you to believe that 
when you were saved, that means that it has removed all of your doubts, all of your questions, all of your struggles. So if you are struggling today with doubt, he would say that that is a telltale sign that you're not a believer. Well, we have a whole book of the Bible, the Psalms, where the psalmists were often struggling with their doubts and insecurities. They were questioning God constantly throughout the Psalms. But what Satan wants you to believe is that if you are doubting God, you've lost your salvation. The third thing he wants you to doubt is this. He wants you to make a false conclusion that because you're going through really difficult circumstances in your life, it's a clear sign God doesn't love you. So so as you're going through these difficulties and these circumstances in life, he wants you to believe that that's a sign that God does not love you, does not accept you, and that you're not in Christ. So maybe as you're going through health crises or financial crises or relational crises in your life, then you're constantly being told you're not a believer. You're not a believer. And it's a lie right from the pit of hell. Sometimes he wants you to believe that the things where you're growing in life are a byproduct of your natural abilities and have nothing to do with the grace that God has done in your life. Instead of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control coming out of your life as a byproduct of the Holy Spirit living in your life, he wants you to believe that those are just natural talents that you have, that they're coming from you and you alone. They're not because you're a believer. They're just because you are a human. So he wants you to doubt your salvation because he wants you to focus on your sin versus the Savior. He wants you to believe that God's grace means that you should never doubt ever again. He wants you to believe that your circumstances are a product of the fact that God doesn't love you. He wants you to believe that even the good things that you're doing are a byproduct of your natural ability, but not God's ability in your life. He wants you to believe, fifthly, Satan that the kind of battles that you have with sin is a battle that only unbelievers have. You ever feel this way? That as I am battling with a particular sin in my life, that something knocks into my mind and it says, well, the only reason you're battling that way is because you're not a Christian. Have you ever thought that? Well, that is Satan in your flesh trying to rob you of joy and to give you the sense that because you are struggling with sin, he's trying to get you to believe that it is a hypocritical thing that you're doing in life. There's no doubt that we are supposed to be growing in righteousness and growing to become more and more like Christ, but it is also very clear that this side of heaven, we will never have a perfect hour, let alone a perfect day. Satan wants to convince you as well that your joy that you used to have in the past that you'd never, you don't experience today is a byproduct of the fact that you've fallen away. Think about this. You know, have you ever remembered yourself thinking about where you were when you first got saved and all the joy that you had at that time? And now you look at your present condition and you say, I'm not there. So that must mean I was never a believer in the first place. It's possible. But there are plenty of times that believers in the Lord Jesus Christ struggle with joylessness. Plenty of times that we struggle with doubt. Plenty of times that we struggle with insecurities. And Satan wants you to believe that if you're lacking joy today, it is a clear sign that you're not a believer. Well, it may be a clear sign that there are some things that you need to change in your life, but it doesn't mean that you've lost your salvation or that you never had it. 
Satan also wants you to believe that when you've fallen back into habitual sin that you've done in the past, relapsed into sin that you had freedom from, that if you've gone back to it in the future, that must mean that you weren't a believer in the first place. Have you ever thought that? A particular sin that I struggle with and I've actually had freedom from, now what happens is I've gone back to that same sin, so it's a clear sign that I'm not a believer. It may not be. It may be a clear sign that I am a sinner, (laughs) which I am. And over and over again. So whether it's your sin more than the Savior, or that that you should have a grace that is so great that you never doubt, or that the conditions and the struggles in my life are big and that God has left me, or that the things that I do and the good things that I do are only because of me, or that the battles that I have make me a hypocrite, or that the fact that I had joy and I don't have it now is a sign that I'm not a believer, or that I relapsed into sin is an evidence that I'm a struggling sinner, that I am not in Christ. Or the last one, which is interesting, he says, he said that unbelievers only face the manner and the weight of the temptation that you're facing now. Hear this, that unbelievers, only unbelievers, face the manner and the weight of the temptation that you're facing right now. Which is very interesting, because Satan is cunning. What Satan will do is he knows you, He knows your weaknesses. He will craft his plan to tempt you and to get you to fall. So he's crafted a personal plan to lead you to fall. And then what he does is that when you fall, he says you're not a believer. And he's just trying to undercut the freedom that Christ has earned for you. So when when I struggle and when my people struggle with feeling confident in Christ or confident in their salvation. I bring them back to Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, there is no way that I'm going to be able to go through 39 of these verses today. But what I want you to do for me is this. When I go to Scripture, I do three things. I want to learn what is happening in this passage, number one. I want to understand how much I can love God and love others through this passage, number two. And then I want to figure out how I can live out this passage, breathe it out in my life. Learn it. Love it. Live it. So as we go through this passage, I just want you to hear once again what Christ has done for every person in this room that is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to hear it's not an if, it's a sense. And that even if flesh and Satan are attacking you, you need to be bringing your mind back to the things of the Spirit. Because the mind that is set on the Spirit is life and peace. So hear me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That if you are in Christ Jesus today, all of the condemnation is gone. All of the guilt that you've done is gone. It was put on the Lord Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago when he lived a perfectly righteous life for you and he died in your place when he said it is finished, it is done. And that in Christ, there is no condemnation ever again. It's not a condemnation that was there and it will come back. It's a there is therefore now no condemnation. If you are in Christ... And so as flesh and Satan and the world try to undercut your faith, you need to remind yourself once again, you're completely free in Christ. 
He says, for the law of the spirit, law here is not a written law, but it is a power, it's a principle, it's an energy. The law of the spirit, the principle energy of the spirit of life. That, that for every person in this world, we were spiritually dead, and he has brought us alive in Christ, if you were in Christ. He has, the Bible calls it, regenerated you, or born again. He's brought you back to faith. He's brought you into faith. It's the law of the spirit of life. Even as we're walking around physically, he has given us spiritual life. He has set you free from what? Condemnation. And he is progressively separating us from contamination in our lives, and that only happens in Christ Jesus. From the law of the sin of death, the energy, the power, the principle of death that is at work in us. So I need you to hear that the Holy Spirit is giving us spiritual life and you're in him. In verse 4, it says, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. What God did for us in Lord Jesus Christ is that Christ lived every day perfectly from the womb to the grave because I will never live a moment from the womb to the grave perfectly. And so what Christ did for you and for me, if we are in Christ, is that he lived perfectly righteous for you. He fulfilled that for you. And then what he has done, he has granted that to you in faith. And then on top of that, what he is doing is he is wanting to create a righteous life in you so that the perfect love of God has been established and given to you as a position, but then practically he wants you to be able to live that out in your life. And now he's giving you the Holy Spirit to be able to do that day after day to grow progressively by glory to glory, looking more and more like Christ. In order that the righteous requirements of the law may be filled in us who walk not according to the flesh, according to our own ways, but according to the spirit. Verse five, for those who live according to the flesh have set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit have set their minds on the things of the spirit. It's your mind where your mind stays makes such a significant difference. Is your mind set on Christ or is your mind set on this world? Is your mind set on life and peace or is your mind set on death? For to set the mind on death is as flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the life, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. That outside of Christ, we have a mindset that is incapable of following God's word, but also has a desire not to follow God's word. And what the Holy Spirit does is it gives us a new life, a desire to follow him. And then that brings us to the first if of this passage. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if... In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Christians are not in the flesh. We live with a body. The flesh is still alive in us, but we are not in the flesh. Christians are in Christ. You've been replaced. Romans chapter 5 says that you were in Adam, and now you are in Christ And so as you live and breathe that, as you understand that the spirit of God and the spirit of Christ lives in you. So when he says here, if in fact the spirit of God lives in you, what he is saying is this, you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ are not in the flesh, the spirit dwells in you. Let God speak to you today 
Because the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, dwells in you because you belong to him. What does it say here? It says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Well, what's the opposite? If you do have the Spirit of Christ, you belong to him. What a precious promise that the Holy Spirit of God lives in you and the Holy Spirit of God tells you that you belong to him. That leads us to our second if. But, verse 10, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of, is life because of righteousness. See, the previous verse, verse 9, talks about the spirit indwelling us. This verse, verse 10, tells us about Christ indwelling a believer. It doesn't mean that there's a difference between that the spirit and Christ are the same. They're not. They are equal. I mean, they are co-equal. But both are fully God. Both are walking, working cooperatively in your life as a believer. That the Holy Spirit is working in your life. Lord Jesus Christ is working in your life. And all of this is for the glory of the Father. To bring you to the Father. So I want you to hear that Christ is in you. And even though your body is breaking down, I was praying with one of our believers this morning, her, her body is breaking down or she fell and she's hurt herself today. And as our bodies break down, they do, but your spirit is alive because the Holy Spirit lives in you and Christ is in you. So I need you to hear the precious promise that the righteousness of Christ is yours. Not only is the Holy Spirit living in you, but the righteousness of Christ is yours because of what Christ has done and what the Holy Spirit is doing. That leads us to our third if. It says, verse 11, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit that dwells in you. Again, we hear the Trinity here. It's the Father, it's the Son, it's the Spirit working together in your salvation. The Father planned your salvation. The Son provided for your salvation. And the Holy Spirit is the pledge of your salvation. And they are at work. And that Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you as a believer. So it's not only that he's given you life, and it's not only that he has given you the mind of Christ, and it's not only that he is telling you that you belong to him, but he, the power, the resurrection power of Christ and the Holy Spirit lives in every believer. So no believer should be able to say, I can't, if God has said you must. That I have the power of the Holy Spirit living in me and breathing in me today. So if that Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead raised and lives in me. Even though, once again, my body's breaking down, I'm growing deeper and confident in my faith. He says in verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not according to the flesh. You don't owe the flesh anything but to beat it up. We're not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but if you live, here's the next one, if you live according to the flesh, you will what? You will die. So here's the certainty that if a person is living day by day outside of Christ, by the flesh, according to the world, what it is showing is that this person is outside of Christ and will have eternal death that will be brought to them. It's a sobering word when you sit down and think about it, that if, I, if a person is constantly living according to the flesh, they are showing signs that they are not in Christ at all. 
I pray that as I look out at you today, that not that you're going to have a perfect day, no, but if you are finding yourself day after day after day habitually thinking and speaking and acting like the world, what would give you the assurance that you are in Christ? But here's the promise. For it says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So here's the beauty of the of the sin is being destroyed in my life day by day. It's not that I am perfectly holy. It's not that I am letting go and letting God do this in my life. It's not that I've gotten to a place where I am sinless, but God, through his spirit, is giving me the energy and the power to say no to sin. And I don't struggle with sin in certain ways as much as I did before. And then I could see a progressive growth in my life. And if that is you, it is a clear sign that you're in Christ and that you have your Holy Spirit living in you. Not perfect. It's not about perfection. It's about the direction of your life. And are you generally on an upward climb in your life? That should give you confidence in knowing you will live. Not only will you live, but you do live. He says in verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, judgment, but you have received a spirit of adoption. You have been adopted and brought into God's family by whom we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. And the Spirit himself is bearing witness. He's testifying to you over and over again that within your spirit that you are a child of God. Are you hearing the Holy Spirit speaking to you and saying to you, you're a child, you're a child, you're a child, you're a child. Even as Satan in your flesh may be attacking you, you're a child of God. Verse 17, it gets us to our next if. And if children... Heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. I want you to know that all who are God's children are heirs of this wonderful promise, the promise of a relationship with God, the promise that you will inherit eternal salvation, the promise that you will receive glory. Every adopted child of God has received his divine grace and the full assurance that Christ is in them and will live and breathe in them. You are heir. You know, back in the Old Testament, it was just the older son that really got the major portion of the um, of the inheritance, and then everyone else got a lesser one. You're a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ today, an heir of God and a joint heir of Jesus Christ. And when you live your life with all of these lacks, all of these deficits, all of these things I desperately need, all of your needs, if you're in Christ, have been met in him. All of the promises are what? Yes and what? Amen. You're free. You're a child. You've been given a great inheritance. For verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed. And then he talks about this groaning. He says, for great creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of God's sons. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. 
That even as you're groaning and struggling, do you still have hope? Hope in God that he is looking to do something different in your life. Hope in God that, you know what, I struggle and I I go through these difficult times, but there is this light that is there. The light has never really gone out. Well, it never will for a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he talks about in this section about creation groaning. He talks about the Christian groaning. He even talks about himself, the Holy Spirit as the comforter, is groaning along with you. That as we live this side of heaven, there's so much pain and so many sorrows and so many tears. He says in verse 21 that the creation itself will be set free from bondage eventually to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, the future glory amazing. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have been the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our own bodies. Verse 24, for in this hope we are saved, that hope, and now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Does that sound familiar to the passage we talked about last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where it says that the difficulties of this life, and as you're focusing on the things of this life, they're temporary, they're transient. You focus on glory, and what Paul is saying is focus on future glory. Don't get so caught up in what's happening around you. Get focused on the Christ and the future glory that is there. That leads us to another if. Verse 25. It says this, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with patience. This present condition of creation is not the final one. I want you to know that. The struggles that we're having today are not final and full. Your salvation has begun. He has begun this good work in you. The Holy Spirit has been given as a down payment, but it will ultimately be consummated in glory. That the struggles that you go through today are not a sign that you're not in faith. Perhaps the struggles today are a sign that we are this side of heaven and that God is calling us to long for that side of heaven. Do you live with that kind of hope? Do you live with that kind of expectation or do you find yourself getting disappointed and frustrated? Do you live with patience or do you live with eagerness or do you live with impatience? God is saying that if you are in Christ and you're reminding yourself of that, you can have a hope that will transcend the struggles that you go through. So we can wait with patience. The Spirit is helping us in our weakness. Believe it or not, watch this in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Well, we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself is interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. You ever find yourself struggling at times where you can't even come with the, with the words to pray? I can't even mouth the words. I can't even think of it. I can't even tell myself, what is it that I want to pray for? And as I'm just groaning inside, what the Holy Spirit is doing is he's interpreting those groanings and he's bringing them before the Father and laying them before his throne to say that I'm praying for my believer right now. And he who searches the heart knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit is interceding for the saints according to the will of God. And I know all of you know this precious promise in Romans eight twenty eight. For we know that for those who love God, what is it? All things work together for good. 
for those who are called according to his purpose. We need to know this. Paul is saying, know this. The Holy Spirit is saying, know this. Do not let the Satan or your flesh tempt you again. You must know that God loves you and that God is going to work all these things, all the suffering, all the pains, all the trials, all the longings, all the difficulties, and including the good things in life. He is working that all together for good. And what's the good? That you look more and more like Christ. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed. He wants to make you more and more like his son in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those he predestined or he chose, he called. And those he called, he will also justify. And those who he justified, he will also glorify. So that leads us to our last if. What shall we say to these things? Verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, there is this um, interesting thing that tends to happen in our lives. We have a tendency to find ourselves questioning whether God could ever go back and bring us under condemnation once again. Do you ever struggle that way? And is it is it possible that I could go back into the courtroom and that God would say that, you know what? I've changed my mind about you. That's what Satan wants you to believe. But we're again here, it says, if God is for us, it is not implying doubt or a lack of assurance. What it is actually implying is that there is an assurance here. If God is, or since God is for you, who in the world could be against you? John Stott said it this way, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can stand against God? The answer is nobody. Nothing can defeat us if the almighty God of this universe is on your side. I want you to hear that, my brothers and sisters. So when you question whether God is for me, I want you to hear that if God says I am for you, he is never going to change that. He is with you. Verse 32 says this. It says, verse 32 It says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? I want you to know that, is it possible for God to ever grow tired of us? Is it possible for God to ever forget about you? Is it possible for God to move on? No. God gave you his son, look to the cross, and what do you need? Maybe right now you need ability to resist temptation. Well, he says, no temptation has seized you, but it's common to man. God is faithful and just. He will give you everything that you need to deal with that temptation. What do you need today? Maybe you need some hope and tribulation. Jesus says, I am your hope. What do you need? You need guidance and direction. God has given you his word. What do you need? Maybe you need comfort, but God the Father is comforting you even as you're going through these trials. If God has given you the lesser of the greater, his son, he will give you these lesser things. Clearly, if God gave us Jesus, the greatest of all possible gifts, he can be counted on to give us the lesser gift. The cross proves God's generosity. So day after day, I need you to go back to the cross and remind yourself of that cross. Verse 33, it tells us this. It says this, that, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. 
It's almost like you went back into the courtroom and it's like, who's going to condemn me now? It moves back into that courtroom, into the legal proceeding. And the chapter began with no condemnation, which is in the judicial um, proceedings. And now he is saying, what happens if I went back into court? Is it possible that God could say that I've changed my mind? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies you. He declares you not guilty. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who's at the right hand of God and he's interceding for you. If the Holy Spirit is interceding for you today, the Lord Jesus Christ is also interceding for you today. And they're bringing your prayer requests before the Father. So as you're struggling with doubt today, know that the Holy Spirit is working for you. Know that the Lord Jesus Christ is working for you. And there is no one that will ever bring a charge against you. What happens if Jesus decides to back out and he says, you know, I've changed my mind with them. Who shall condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died for you. More than that, he's been raised for you and he's at the right hand interceding for you. And then he ends with this powerful section. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're suffering. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure of this. You need to be confident of this. For neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a climactic statement. What a precious promise that you have, that that God has given you no condemnation in Christ and he has given you no separation from his love, this perfect love. This, This father who is perfect and purposeful, he loves you. This passionate Savior who has died for you and has risen for you. This powerful paraclete who is there in your life, who is your comforter and wants to bring you to faith and wants to grow you in that faith. And I want you to hear that you are a protected people because we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The promise of all promises, no condemnation, no separation from his love. So when Satan is um, tempting you with despair and when he's telling you of all the guilt within, where do you go? Upward, you look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted what? Free. Because God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So today, as you go through your struggles, I want you to hear the ifs as sins. That God has done this amazing work in your life, and he wants to transform you and change you. Robert Murray McShane often said this, for every one look at yourself, I want you to take ten looks at Christ. I think that's good counsel. So every time I am tempted to look at myself and I'm tempted to despair, I need to take 10 looks back at what Christ has done for me and how he has transformed me. Let me end with this last quote from Thomas Brooks in that book that we were talking about, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. We all have things in Christ. 
Christ is in all things to Christians. If we are sick, Jesus is our physician. If we are thirsty, Jesus is our fountain. If our sins trouble us, Jesus is our righteousness. If we stand in need of help, Jesus is mighty to save. If we fear death, Jesus is our life. If we are in darkness, Jesus is our light. If we are weak, Jesus is our strength. If we are in poverty, Jesus is our plenty. If we desire heaven, Jesus is the way. The soul cannot say, this I would have or that I would have. But having Jesus, he has all he needs, eminently, perfectly, eternally. So I'll end with this last question. It's found in verse 31. It says, what shall I say to these things? It's an interesting question because John Stott said, this is the decisive question. This is the decisional question that every one of us have to deal with. What shall I say to these things? Do I believe that I'm a sinner separated from God? Do I believe that there's nothing within me that would be worthy to be saved? Do I believe that I can never fulfill perfect righteousness in none of my own devices? Do I really believe that we will all stand before God and have to give an account? Do I really believe that God is just and worthy to send all of us to an eternity in hell if we're outside of Christ? And do I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life, and that no one is going to come to the Father but through him? Do I really believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the resurrection, and the life, and he who believes in him, though he dies, yet shall he live? Do I really believe that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life? And do I really believe that for the believer that there is therefore no condemnation, and nothing will ever separate you from Christ, do you believe today? So, Father, I I pray that you would help us to hear the ifs of Romans 8 as sense. Help us not to walk away from Romans 8 with doubts and, and lacking assurance of our salvation. Help us to, when we are tempted to despair, and told all of those things that are in our lives, whether it's the flesh or Satan, Father. I pray that rather than focusing on our sin, we'll focus on the Savior. Rather than focusing on our present condition, we'll focus on the past work of Christ and his future work and his current work in our lives. I pray that we would hear that the Holy Spirit has given us life. I pray that we would hear that the Holy Spirit has given us a mind of Christ. I pray that the Holy Spirit reminds us that we are children of God. I pray that we'd be reminded that God, if you've given us your son, you'll give us everything else. And I pray that we would find our comfort and peace in that. For those that are here that have never trusted in him, I pray today would be the day that they would turn to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But for the many of us that do know him and do trust him, help us to hear these words again as comfort and encouragement and help us to share it with others for the glory and honor of your name. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been Lessons for Life with James Long Jr. We hope you've been blessed. For more information, go to jameslongjr.org.